Welcome to the RPG Design Panelcast. This podcast presents the very best recorded panels and seminars with regards to role-playing game design and publishing. This podcast has been made possible thanks to the generous contributions of the panel speakers and of Double Exposure with their amazing game design convention, Metatopia. Episode 132, World Building Towards Story. Recorded at Metatopia 2016. Presented by Kenneth Height and Bill White. That is correct. And so, um, we, uh, I don't know if you have a, uh, a plug. Or people will say we're in love. I think been to every one of my panels. Well, you are my graduate advisor, right? Yes. I'll yes, I am. I'll have my own concern just by the end of the year. The Jesus I, is being I would like to see that. First of all, I'm pretty sure, you have a good plan for your thesis to me yet. Much less than the committee. Anyway, so I was going to say, did you have some, the, the writer's sounded like you had a particular um, direction. Direction. Is this my write up again? Is this one of those things where I drunkenly proposed panels to Darren? That seems like a okay. case. Okay. Right. sounds like yours. Okay, guys, I'm going to straighten up and fly right. That was just nonsense. This is going to be it. Go for it. Okay. Um, I had thought that this was Bill and me doing history riffing, and I'm confused. But now I know what I'm doing. I remembered the proposal as though it were months ago and I was drunk. World building, as Bill and the blurb say, for games has a specific purpose. And the specific purpose is to set uh, in motion stories, not to provide a background for a story. Right? So if you're presenting a setting in a game, a world in a game, what you have to build is a conflict that multiple characters can take part in because conflict is the essence of story, right? Absolutely. Novels need conflict as well, but the conflict can be Heathcliff and Catherine and what's his name, Lockhart or whatever his name, yeah, the, the weasel guy. Um, and that you know you don't have to worry about the enclosure acts or you know the, the state of the of, of the of the Roma in Wales or anything else that's tied up in the novel because the conflict is just this very personal three-person story. Now, for a game setting, one where you can't count on them playing Heathcliff and Catherine, and they may be playing any number of people, you have to have a larger story, even if it's informed by a sort of a, a late Gothic um, uh, a Welsh countryside uh, end, of the, uh, end of the wildness sensibility. You may still be setting it in an 1830s border country, but you have to present a larger story that individual players can set themselves against, individual setting groups can play against, and GMs can use, ideally, even if they have not read Buttering Lights, right? Because the story, the, the world that you're presenting in the game has to be self-contained enough that you can't say, 
read this game and then go read Wuthering Heights and now you can play. Unless it's Wuthering Heights role-playing game, in which case A, or a back Kickstarter, but B, um, that's a special case. But we're talking about de novo world building. Yeah. Ken, it, it sounds like, as I was listening to you, it, it sounds like, uh, to, to a certain extent, you've been saying, um, or are you saying, that in many cases we do world building in games wrong, right? That is the, the thick background sections that yes. outline the politics. Yep. Right. All right. So, um, and, and, and I think I agree with that, right? I think, mm -hmm. I, I think and, and I don't know, is there anyone, uh, and I think we're willing to have the floor be open to folks who disagree with that, right? Who think that, oh, you need the politics, you need all of this. Um, you know, the details about different states and the history of the acts and like so but I, I think we're all willing to accept that as a thing. But I'm willing to I think we're all willing to sort of like defend that thesis more aggressively. Okay, go ahead. Well I'd say it really depends on the context of the game. Okay. Because if you look at D and D, you can just be like, all right, we don't need to know about uh, specific world's background politics, just okay. make up the world, throw them in it. But say for the RPG Legend of the Five Rings, that's very much a set setting that people would want to be playing in and has a lot of uh, detailed politics and uh, ideas that people can sort of focus in on. Yeah, okay. Um, give, so give, give me an example then. Give me an example then of how the, how the politics of Legends of the Five Rings helps players build the story. Uh, just, just, just so we're on the same page. I mean, I think I, think I probably agree, but, but I just want to make sure. Uh, so they wind up needing to meet in some formal court setting where they're trying to uh, get favors from the emperor. Oh, okay. All right. So now, I mean, just just to throw something out there, maybe that's not world building right there. There's an emperor, and you want favors from. I mean, how much more do you need? Okay. I mean, okay. That's, that's let's let's, let's talk about L five R because that is a great example. First of all, of a successful game. Although the success was mostly driven by the collectible card game, um, where the where the text about the world is much smaller because it's in tiny little snippets, and less so by the role playing game. The role playing game obviously has always been an appanage to the card game, uh, and in every way you can imagine. Um, the it's in so much that the world of the role playing game was driven by decisions made during the card game. So that said. Um, Rokugan is a classic example of uh, a near violation or a violation outright of my principle of world building, which is not quite the topic of this panel, which is to start with Earth, because if it had said Japan instead of Rokugan, three orders of magnitude more people would have immediately known what was going on. With, once you say Rokugan, now you have to explain all that shit. You say Japan, you don't have to explain all that shit. You can give minimal story front elements and say, if you really care more about the wars of uh, Hike and Minamoto, you can go read a fucking book about it. We are playing a game about it, and so you only need these immediate story driving knowledges. Did I hear you say that your first principle was start with Earth? Yes. Okay. That's always been my first principle. Uh, because of reasons of buy-in and because of reasons of recognizability and because of reasons of ease on you, the designer. Uh, all the playtesting has been done. And the maps have all been done. It's much better. It's a better game world. More robust. Eric agrees with me. There's just so much you can dig into. Exactly. Um, but uh, if you look at L5R's uh, story creation that the, for the role-playing game, 
and you say, I look at the L5R core book and I feel, gosh, that's an adequate um, uh, mix of background material to game material. I don't know that everyone says that that looks at the L5R core book. I think to some extent, some game settings actively select for the kind of player who does do that. Forgotten Realms would be the classic example of people who want to know what every little bitched pixel in the Forgotten Realms does. Forgotten Realms has found those people and marketed assiduously to them. But just because heroin sells well to heroin addicts does not mean that I think it's a model for a consumer product. So Rokugan has as its advantage the backstop of Imperial of uh, feudal Japan and the ability of people who are interested to go back farther and read about feudal Japan and project it forward through the greater or lesser uh, uh, variations of alterations and distortions that John has put on it and ignore the fact that since it's not an island everything about it would be different. Um, and so Rokugan is in a way sort of offloading a lot of its world building to someone else, namely to Japan, and the amount of material in the fiction that is world building I think that it can be an open question, and certainly there are people who have read some gigantic horse choker of a Forgotten Realms book and have been inspired then to create their own story. I don't think you can say that they don't exist. You can't read them out of the record. But I think many, many people have looked at it and said, Samurai, cool, and written an adventure using only a very thin scrim of that built world without needing to know the thousand-year backstory of uh, Scorpion Clan, right? So I would say that while um, uh, L5R is an example of an overbuilt game world, it is not an example of a badly built game world. Because it does flow to conflict. You've got your, your, uh, your Lang Fu down there in the bottom, and he's got his armies of Oni. You've got the different uh, uh, lead, uh, clans warring for the lead and their buddy clans who are all the trained and shifting around. It's a great conflictful world, and the conflict occurs across multiple axes, which is where I was going to get eventually. Okay. Um, so if you don't want to play uh, Catherine versus Heathcliff or Hatfields versus Coys, you have plenty of other options in that setting to play. So you are not necessarily Lion versus whoever isn't Lion, but you might be Emperor versus Lang Fu, you might be uh, the, the Shugenja versus the um, uh, Buddhist monk examples or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, just, just in listening, uh, it sounds like the sec uh, second principle was built towards conflict and, and you know, multiple or shifting lines. Is that right. the same principle has multiple lines that built towards conflict? Right, yeah. Right. That, that, seems, uh, that, that makes sense. Yes. So, start with Earth, built towards conflict. Um, and others line, I mean, can you say more about those lines, like in, in terms of, is it just factions that might provide uh, motivation for characters because of either belongingness or your work towards them? Or is there something else that you think happens in You, in you should not, I think, set up factions and hope that they cause conflict. Okay. You need to give them a driving reason in the fiction, in the, in the setting, to engage in conflict, and ideally that they've already engaged in conflict. Don't count on your characters starting the gunfight at the OK Corral. Have them show up in Tombstone on October 5th with clans and herps already spoiling for a fight. And then they get to say, are we doing Yojimbo? Are we going to team up with the clans like in Star Trek? Or are we going to team up in, with the herps like decent people should? 
and that gives you an immediate set of decision making, and then you can put as the GM your push pulls into the setting as you wish for your set of players for individual bookingness. But if I'm building that as a world, I want to build a world in which you show up in town, you have a reason to join the clans, you have a reason to join the Earps, but you know that the clans and the Earps are going to come to blows and there's going to be problems. And ideally, in a setting, there will be multiple axes of conflict for people who are like, I don't want to play gunfighters, I want right. to do another thing. And so you might be doing um, uh, cattle rangers versus sheep ranchers, you might be doing um, uh, Wells Fargo versus um, uh, uh, the silver mines, you know, any number of different batches of conflict. Ethnic conflict because there's a giant Chinatown in the middle of Tombstone that no one apparently remembers existed, but it was right there. Um, there's um, uh, all manner of things going on in that setting, just like there is everywhere in the real world, that at any moment can spark a conflict and spark a story. Um, I would say for an example of a badly built world that is also overbuilt, you can look at uh, the classic Traveler universe, oh, yeah, sure. which began as a great example because you have an expanding star empire. So your whole frontier is conflict. And your core is conflict because all the princes are fighting to determine who's starring for it. Right? That's great. You've got a million possible stories that can happen because the robust planet generation within the game, you can generate your own stories that always feed into one of the two main conflicts. Right. Then they introduce the Jodani, and it's like, that's cool, you've got psychic bad guys. And then you introduce I forget who the next ones were. It wasn't the Aslan, but maybe it was the hybrids were the next ones. And you're like, cool, that's great. We got some more aliens. Who doesn't love fighting aliens? And then they kept adding more stuff until suddenly the expanding frontier empire is hemmed entirely around by already written things. Which might not have been a terrible idea if you'd started out and said, this is a story of humanity constrained by a bunch of chunkhead aliens and our need to burst their bonds or our need to come to some understanding and modus vivendi with them so that we can all progress as a, as a galactic civilization. But that's not what the rules But that's not the rules suggested, and it's not what a decade of gameplay had driven people toward. And so the result is you had a frontier game with a closed frontier. It's like writing a Western game and saying, well, we're going to set it in, eight, not in 1880, but in 1980, New Mexico. <laughs> That'll be exciting. You can all be activists for water rights. <laughs> Will there be gunfights? No. <laughs> no, there will not. It'll be a civil conflict, which may be interesting to some people, but is not a game setting as we conventionally understand the modality. Now, the powers that be at Game Design Workshop did say, oh, we'll, we'll, this, we'll never, uh, one sector, right? That they have yeah. a huge star map, they will never do anything yeah. to this sector. But your larger principle, I think, stands. And again, because of their enormous scope as presented initially, the initial sale of that setting is this enormous scope of a plenitude of star sectors. Right. There was what, like 80 in the, in the Empire? Something like that? It was tens, not single digits of sectors. To say one sector is the frontier is like saying this is a western and we're setting it in Pontotoc County, Oklahoma in 1908. When there were gunfights, and lots of them, but it seems a little constrained. constrained, especially if you were sold on John Ford, the West, Tombstone, Monument Valley, and then you got that. Now, you could build a compelling game set in one county, right? You know, uh, Dukes of Hazard, for better or for worse, is an example of uh, a story-rich setting 
which could easily be gamified, um, uh, where you have um, uh, moonshiners versus revenuers and um, ongoing sort of struggles that continuously provoke story. And you can easily gamify something like Azure County or something like the one county in Kentucky where the Hatfields North Voice had their war. Or any number of smaller scope stories can be settings for games, worlds for games. Uh, but again, if you are thinking world building, it can be a little unsatisfying to say, it. well, we said world building, but we're just talking about um, uh, Manawa, West Virginia. Right? Speaking, speaking of world building, right? I think one of, the, one of the things that people find exciting about world building uh, is the notion of, well, I'm going to create something, something recognizably human, but new and different, right? And so the, the premise of, uh, I like. Uh, I just want to hear you talk more about reconciling that notion of I want to, I want to build something, I want to build a language or, or something like that, um, with the notion of starting starting from Earth, right? And, and maybe maybe uh, maybe that's too novelistic a thing to want to do, but but but, but does anyone have that question too? Like uh, like oh, we're talking about world building, you know, I'm going to create this culture that's 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 new and different. Like I think of my friend Joshua A.C. Newman, who's all about you know, how strange can we make this, or how far back to the initial premises and what it means to be human can we go and then still create a recognizable human but different culture. And so, uh, go ahead. Well, I think historically we have a couple of those, but I, uh, and some people really love Tecmo, but I don't know. Oh, yeah, sure. And Jerome, but they I don't, don't seem to have why we're back. I think there was, you get a point where you, well, something's, we're an alien, and what, how do I gain that? Yeah. All right. Yeah, and uh, Joshua, of course, answers that question by writing science fiction games, right? uh, where the world, and again, the world building in Joshua's settings is very much the player activity. Right, that's true. So Joshua is deliberately targeting, much as Forgotten Realms deliberately target pixel butchers, Joshua is deliberately targeting micro-culture world builders, okay. right? And those are more my people than Forgotten Realms pixel butchers are, to be sure. And, and I think in a science fiction setting, you can do that with slightly more justification, although this is almost entirely my aesthetic preference. But secondary world fantasy, as you point out, Technomel, your Jorun, your whatever, is always going to be a harder sell. Even Glorantha is going to be a harder sell than something that is recognizably connected to something you already know. And that is, in most cases, Earth. Now, Middle Earth games sell well, but that is because you are literally dealing with a book that sold in the tens of millions of copies. You will not be able to do that with your version of Middle Earth. You couldn't even do that with you know, a book that has merely sold millions of copies. So I think that regardless of our love for Professor Barker's world-building craft in Tecumel, it winds up being one of those super ornate chairs that you're not sure you want to sit in. Um, and especially because Professor Barker has given you a lengthy set of etiquette rules you must follow before sitting in his chair. Um, so, I mean, Barker is almost, in a sort of perverse way, the anti-model of how to build a successful game world, even though TechML obviously has spawned four role-playing games. Um, but you'll notice that they keep having to spawn new ones. Um, because his world is so hermetic and so self-contained and so insular that there is literally no way into it. And the suggested way you play Tecumel from the beginning is to be a slave captured in a raid and brought to the center of the empire and set down naked and powerless and 
forced to learn the story as you go. Which again, there are demonstrably people who want to play that, but it is not the way to bet if you are trying to sell something or make something that is going to be played by you know, multiple, multiple people or perhaps, um, uh, and again, Jack and Mel is played by multiple, multiple people, but you do not get to go back in time to 1975 to release your game. Yeah. So, I mean, to a certain extent, I, I think the opposite of, of Tecmo would be an open world kitchen sink, maybe like in Zelda, comes to mind, where there are so many books and so many ways into it that they almost feel overwhelmed. Right. Rifts would be my sort of uh, opposite Tecmo. And Rifts, God love it, it started with Earth, it's set on Earth. Right. Rifts, Earth is an Earth. And if you're like, what's Rifts Brazil like? It's insane. Just like Rifts New Zealand and Rifts Liechtenstein and Rifts Utah, there's no place in Rifts that is not bugfo. <laughs> so if if, um, uh, if, uh, if you know Rifts is like you know what just multiple conflicts or even sane Ken myriad conflicts all with robots. So how far would you extend your Star Wars? Because I know you like revising history towards like gameable premises of like, oh no, there's actually vampires there. Right. But a lot of games use like a fictional city or like Mutant City Blizzard is just the city, a city, somewhere right. a city. When you're making a, a, a setting, is it a better idea to say like, oh, this is in Chicago, just a slightly weird, weirder Chicago? Or is there a problem when you want to make your own entirely fictional city to leave as many avenues open as possible? Uh, Mutant City Blues is a specific case in which Robin says, Mutant City is your city. Right. Yeah. Uh, and with fine uh, uh, Torontonian disregard for people who don't live in cities. Um, <laughs> but you, the goal of Mutant City Blues is not to play in Mutant City. The goal is to play in whatever city yeah, you're right. in. Yeah, right. A, a city. Yeah. Um, with a city that's made up like Freedom City and right. uh, in uh, uh, Mutant Masterminds or uh, any of those. Um, I forget the name of the city in uh, Dark Champions, but there's a city in Dark Champions. Hudson City, right. And so those are um, sort of leaning again on the familiarity of comics fans with Metropolis and Gotham and the notion of the constructed city. There's examples, obviously, like Arkham, which is a, 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 a creative setting that many people know better than they know any other town in Massachusetts. <laughs> But again, Lovecraft does not set Arkham on the planet Nubar. He sets it in Massachusetts um, and fixes that realism there. And I think that you can go a little overboard in saying, I'm building Gotham City, I'm building Metropolis, I'm building Freedom City, I'm building whatever, because you don't get to have Batman. Or actually, you, the GM, do, but you, the game designer, certainly do not get to have Batman because Warner Brothers will be very mad at you if you try and put Batman in your setting. And if you actually ask yourself, what do we know about Gotham City as a lived environment? It's very, very little. We know that it's full of Joker games and it has Batman. And now we are done. I mean, for a brief, beautiful moment, Gotham City looked exactly like Chicago and was therefore the greatest city in the world because it was Chicago with Batman. But by and large, I think that you get every bit the advantage as a game creator, not as a novelist, because novelists need to control every aspect of setting. And so they may say, well, there has to be a beetling cliff overlooking this town, so it can't just be St. Paul, Minnesota. It has to be St. Paul, Minnesota with a giant cliff instead of Minneapolis, which in addition to being a huge improvement, changes, you know, 
does something different to the feel of the story. Um, but if you are writing a setting where multiple stories have to happen, again, we know for a fact multiple stories can happen in Chicago or New York or Los Angeles or New Orleans or Berlin or wherever. And many of those stories are stories that you won't have known before you began writing your setting. And suddenly you're like, seriously? They built a subway in Cincinnati and then just abandoned it? That's exciting. I've literally been excited by Cincinnati for the first time ever. How can I use that in my game? And now you have a thing. Uh, when uh, Malcolm Craig wrote Cold City, he could have set it in an imaginary city of monsters, but he set it in Cold War Berlin because he wants that specific historical crunch. And I think that specific crunch that you can get that acts as a poetic constraint on you is more productive of creativity than being given a blank page and saying, your city is Pandora City. What do you want there? Because 90% of the things you want in Pandora City, you could have found in New York or Seattle or London with a minimum of work. But then don't you risk like alienating the, the audience that is actually there? Like, this is Chicago. Well, if you know a shitty version of it, you do. Okay. But, you know, my, my, I mean, I guess the zeroth rule, even before Start With Earth, is don't be a shitty world designer. Right. I'll never know Chicago as well as you know Chicago. Well, yeah, but, you know, if, if people stop writing because they don't know the topic as well as I do, then, uh -huh. then <laughs> I can't recommend that in good conscience. <laughs> about earlier in previous panels about the difference between being a game designer and being a GM. Whereas a GM you seem to be uh, smarter than your second smartest player. Right. Or no more than your second smartest player about the setting. But a designer has a lot more has a has to be considerably better read going iceberg than right, yeah. to keep for some uh some of those that. Um when using real cities, isn't that sort of an issue because not a lot of especially modern real cities. Like if you're talking about like a particular uh, Particular historical city in France, you can probably, like we're in a speaking audience, you can probably be the smartest guy in the room that, or the smartest guy reading the book about mm -hmm. that easily. But if you're talking about uh, Chicago or Philadelphia, there are lots of people who have very different experience there. That's not the way that works. Uh, and even, even without even being trying to tell you, it's just setting apart. Kind of an answer to that, um, and then I'll get to something. Um, that, that may actually be a feature, right? The fact that there are other people who are smarter than you about a place or a thing that you're dealing with, but that requires that you be willing to be iterative in your game design, right? That you go out and you try it out with people who may know more than you. I was running uh, an adventure uh, this weekend that uh, is supposed to be set in Barcelona. I've never been to Barcelona. I've talked to people, I've read it about it on Wikipedia and other websites. Uh, I talked to people who've been there uh, a little bit, and I wrote my adventure. I played it this weekend. And someone said, oh, you know what? This cocktail party thing that you're talking about, wouldn't it be cooler if it was um, in the box um, at the FC Barcelona Stadium so that um, instead of just being uh, you know, a cocktail party on a yacht, it's, you've got the crowds and hooligans because people love their soccer in Barcelona. Right? And I was like, shit, I didn't know that. That's cool. Right? And so the idea that the fact that you can learn more about a place that makes it more interesting and better and, and make, your, make that a better design, something you can build in, uh, I mean, yes, it's humbling, but it's also kind of exciting, right? And, and you won't get that with a made up place. But, um, so I, I think, so, so the possibility exists that you can use that idea of, I don't know, wisdom of crowds kind of thing to your advantage. Eric? Yeah, and, and this is just more of a comment, but 
uh, the wisdom of crowds that you're talking about. Under no circumstances will you know your property, especially when you bought it, more than some type of thing. They will remember something that you wrote eight years ago that you the West Times and those that on that you don't remember and you will point it out. So there's way more gray matter in your fan base than you can ever use. And then, as Aaron I think points out, that's true of imaginary settings just as much as it is true of real settings. I guarantee you there are people who know Forgotten Realms better than anyone who's working on Forgotten Realms. There are people who probably know it better than Ed. <laughs> and uh, the only reason people don't know Glorantha better than Greg is that Greg just retcons it would never have been true, whatever they say. <laughs> <laughs> people talk about their, their Glorantha game having, or their request game having been Greg at some random panel when someone tried to step to it. <laughs> Um, so yeah, that's that's a that's that's a disadvantage in many cases, both of an invented setting, even one you invented, and a and a real world setting. And I think the advantages of the real world well outweigh it. Um, to sort of talk about this in terms of our sort of anchor principles, be willing to be iterative is certainly one of them. Okay? And whether you are iterative in play and release, in the sense of I'm going to release my setting with the understanding that in this bold new world of PDFs. When I get the angry letter from the guy in Barcelona because I wrote it wrong, I will then have made a mental commitment to go and take what he says, find the parts of those that feed story, parts of those that, that feed conflict, and put them into my Barcelona to improve it. Not to listen to every rando, but if someone says, hey, did you know that the, there's these soccer hooligans in Barcelona and it's a big deal, and you're like, well, that sounds like a conflict. That sounds like story. So, so I can put that in. And the other way to be iterative is to, is to, as I mentioned in the research panel, be iterative during the design process, where you design your Providence, Rhode Island, or your Buenos Aires, or whatever. And the iterative does not come in releasing it and hoping that a Buenos Aires writes you a snotty letter. The iterative part comes in reading nine more things about Buenos Aires and being willing to go back and tear out something when in book seven about Buenos Aires you're like, holy Crap, I did not know that thing that makes the story better. Right. That makes the story, not the story better, but the story more pregnant with possibilities. That makes the setting more either bookier, like right. there was a real vampire serial killer there. Oh, goodness me. Now I am the winner. Or whatever it might be. I don't know that there was a, I don't have to slur Buenos Aires. I'm sure they've never had a vampire serial killer. There was one of us Yeah. They're, they're all over the place. There's ones in Tokyo, San Francisco, lots of places. Anyhow, um, but that seventh book that you read is going to be the equivalent of having released your game and having a bunch of people from uh, uh, Buenos Aires uh, write you with uh, snotty letters and say, we're not called Buenos Aires, <laughs> or whatever. And that's going to give you that same iterative quality. And being willing to be iterative with anything, I think, improves your, your design because you have put it to the imaginary stress of, if this historian of Buenos Aires played my Buenos Aires game, would he like it? Right. And that gives you that depth of setting that people think you can get by making up languages and drawing your Tolkienian hydrographic patterns and everything else. And what that does not get you is depth of setting. That gets you people putting your book back down. Um, you know, even Tolkien fans, tens of millions, hundreds of millions strong, you know, you say, okay, all Tolkien fans, how many of you have read The Silmarillion? Many fewer hands go up. And how many of you have read the endless stream of, of stuff that Christopher Tolkien found in the attic? Hands keep going down. So even Tolkien can bore people with his setting. You are not Tolkien. I promise you that. 
Good question. Uh, how would you approach a setting that is uh, science fiction, very heavily reliant on technology, where a lot of the goal is to put people into sort of a, a post-human alien state as players? I'm thinking of Eclipse Space, which is mm -hmm. very dense in lore, which you kind of need in order to even create a character and know what class and abilities they have. I think that the density of lore in the presentation is different from the density, the, the story pregnancy or the value of the setting, right? I think that we have conflated that in our, in our description, but so much of what's going on in the Eclipse phase specifically is having to explain all the technological changes and having to explain what does it mean when your brain can be taped and downloaded? What does it mean that this weird thing has happened? And notice, even Eclipse Phase very sneakily gets rid of the biggest problem they could possibly have by decimating Earth. Earth is gone. So now no one from Goa is writing them angry letters saying, your Goa doesn't work. Right? You're not going to get letters from guys who live on Ceres saying that you've got their asteroid wrong. Um, so they have simplified their setting even while they're building out this huge amount of other lore about it. With a science fiction setting, there's no way around it. Just like in a fantasy setting, you've got to explain the magic, right? Um, I think Eclipse Phase could do it more economically, certainly, and get 90% uh, of the bang for 20% of the text. And I think that would do better to open Eclipse Phase to more players. What would that text focus on? The text would focus on immediate story now. If you look, for example, at GURPS Transhuman Space by David Pulver, which is pretty much the same setting, Okay. Except Earth didn't go away. So Pulver is working at a disad. One book about this thick. He then added more supplementary books. There's more in the line because game publishers think they're magazine publishers. But that one book is vastly shorter in word count than Eclipse Phase, and it contains all of GURPS because it's a powered by GURPS standalone book. So it's, it's a core book versus core book question. And Eclipse Phase is many, many words longer and transient space. If you look at transient space, if you look at the way that Dave presents the technologies and Dave presents the, the conflicts, those conflicts are all front-loaded. The, the, the iceberg I mentioned in the iceberg panel, it's not just an iceberg with 10% showing, it's it's a diamondoid shard with the tip pointed right at you. And that tip is one of the crises going on right now. Who wants what out of them? Every planet, every uh, economic environment he sets up at least two competitors so mars is run by the chinese but uh america is mining helium and saturn but you know everything here's a thing that's going on but downloading your brain is accepted but right every one of those things in the in the setting that are acting as war and then background is also providing conflict is also providing story and so if you look at that and again i'm not saying that transient space is a accurate portrayal of the world in 2100, and I'm not saying it's a model to follow, but I'm saying it does the same thing Eclipse Phase does at a fraction of the word game. And again, I, I, for the record, I like very much both of those worlds. I think Eclipse Phase does a great job of establishing its core conflict, like you say about transhumanism, um, given that it's both a pro-transhumanist book and also a book about the threat of transhumanism. It does a really good job of presenting that as a sort of a, a thematic conflict. And maybe that might be our fourth or fifth, I don't forget how many principles we were. But 
if since we are doing a game, in many ways, it is helpful to have a theme, right? right? It is helpful to have a theme that can drive conflict, a theme that can drive story. Uh, in Call of Cthulhu, the theme is, of course, the classic theme of the Western. Uh, picking up the, 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 the method of killing the danger makes you the danger, right? Um, combined with um, uh, you know, self-sacrifice. Um, in Eclipse Phase, there's this tension of transhumanism, which is very similar. Um, in uh, Rokugan, it's, it's, it's honor, but honor to whom? In Knights Black Agents, it's um, uh, you have to be a thing of the night to hunt a thing of the night. So a lot of these sort of over, overarching themes that come out as part of gameplay, and I think that if you set up your world to reinforce that theme, as, trans, as uh, Eclipse Phase does, then you again present story because you can say, all right, I know nothing about Antarctica in my setting. What's my theme of my game? What is my game about? Love will conquer all is what my, my story of my game is. Well, who loves whom in Antarctica? What's that about? And it's like, well, is it about the scientists who are in the little habitat and they have to, you know, huddle together for warmth during the long winter? Is it about, you know, people on opposite sides of Antarctica figuring out a way to communicate? What's, what's my story that's about love? And now what's the conflict that screws it up? Can I tie it into any of my other setting conflicts? Uh, if my game is about gray aliens infiltrating the world, it's like, if, what do you really know about the person you fall in love with? Now that's your Antarctica story. Oh fuck, I've just rewritten the thing. That's great! Everyone loves the thing. <laughs> the thing, the love story. Tell me you wouldn't play that. Um, so so uh, you have a theme that informs, as we just saw, it informs story creation and setting creation. Right because it gives you a direction to point. Again, you can wind up with decision paralysis, and the first answer you come up with, you might think, well, that's the best answer, because it's the first answer I came up with. When you start with Earth, you can't use the first thing you came up with, because it isn't true nine times out of 10. You have to do some work and be constrained in the direction. Theme constrains you in a direction. Necessity for conflict constrains you in a direction. By the time you're constrained in three directions, you define a pretty good place yeah, space. That's what I'm trying to do. Exactly. So, that is my sort of lengthy answer to your question about science fiction. Science fiction is, again, sort of a cheat because you get to make a world, but it's still a world that's connected to the real world because you got there from our world somehow. And so even if it's the very tenuous sort of connection, but you'd have that same problem, I think, if you were playing a game in the Indus Valley civilization of Lohendrangaro, you know, where it might as well be a fantasy world since we know nothing about it and we can't read its writing. Um, and you're putting magic in it anyway because you want to sell the game. Um, but the tenuous connection is still there. You can sort of see it as like, as an American, I go to places that have Indian restaurants, people from India exist, India exists, India has a past, Mahindra You're in a science fiction game, you're like, I'm on Earth, Earth is a planet, we have rockets, rockets go to space, eventually we'll build a warp drive because please let us build a warp drive. And you go to Tau Ceti and then we have our adventures on your Tau Ceti. And I can get to your Tau Ceti in my head or your um, uh, or your um, uh, uh, Villani star sector, or whatever it happens to be. I can do that in my head because you have, there is a thread connecting you to Earth that I feel is harder to do with your Forgotten Realms, where nothing connects it to anything. It's all, you know, Ed Green was mad brain. And Ed is a delight, and so many of his mad brain things are delightful. But Part of why I love uh, Ravenloft better is they drew up me a line that connects it to Transylvania. Other questions? Kevin, 
So let's say to summarize, we have gotten stuck in terms of, uh, not stuck, but uh, to, to reiterate the principles that we've identified. So, uh, rule zero, be a good game designer. Rule one, uh, start with Earth. Rule two, build towards conflict using you know, lines and axes of conflict. Uh, uh, you were gracious enough to say be iterative. Is, yes. Is, uh, is that be a fourth principle? Um, and uh, is there a fifth? Are there others? Uh, build towards theme. Build towards theme. Right, theme. Build towards theme. Yeah. Um, yeah, comments. Uh, so early on, you were helping me. I mean, this is all the information, but early on, I helped you out with between story building for novels versus story building for games. And I just wanted you to talk a bit more about how that. How, how do you approach a game like Buffy the Vampire Slayer? Where, obviously, from a narrative standpoint. Myth delight. Sure, absolutely. But from a narrative standpoint, the focus is on Buffy. She is the main character. She's a titular character. Mm -hmm. So, creating a game can play that, they've done it, whether it works for you or not is, is another question, but how can you approach that kind of narrative that's going to make a game play? Now is the question how do you approach a licensed game world, or is the no, question no, how do you approach a narrative that by definition is only going to be about one character? I, I consider that to be a sub-optimal way to design a role-playing game, because so far, I mean, Gumshoe 1 to 1 comes out in December and January and may change all of this, and God hopes it does. Um, but right now, the, the standard game playing party is more than one person, right? right? So a story should be about multiple characters, and Buffy the TV show is about multiple characters to an extent, but because it is a good TV show, it is about one main character. Uh, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, the game, works very hard to give non-slayers something to do. Um, I think that if you are writing the game about the one hero, or heroine, um, or one robot or dragon, or whatever, um, you are deliberately closing your eyes to how games are played at the table. And it would be a similarly bold step to say we're, play we're playing a game in which the setting constantly changes and you don't know anything about it. And you never will know anything about it and the only thing that matters is your personal emotional state. And you can build a really cool game of surrealism or dream logic or something like that but you have bitten off a very challenging hump, and building a game about one person is difficult, especially if you expect four people to play at the table, because three people automatically are angry at you. Yeah. I mean, uh, just to interject, I mean, uh, uh, that might be a slightly di different technical problem than world building per se, but if you think about the games that do that, and the suggestions that they've thrown about how to do that, you have a single sort of um, uh, central character of some sorts. Think about uh, the game Bluebeard's Bride that's coming out. You play different aspects of the bride's personality, and, and any one of those is, comes to the fore at different times. It's sort of like that movie, the Amy Poehler movie with the, with the little girl, little girl's emotions. Inside, kind of, inside, like, inside me. Inside me, right? Yeah. Something like that, right? So, that, so, so there's a way, right, of addressing that, but that's, that's a, and so you, you can imagine uh, if you want to sort of, uh, it's building towards conflict in the sense that you're identifying internal conflict, but figuring out a way of gaming internal conflicts. Another way of doing it is, I've seen proposals for games where the title character, uh, central character is actually an NPC, and uh, so it's, um, you're the bridge crew of the Enterprise, and your job is to make Kirk look good, right? So, you know what I mean? So, so, you, so you play around that. I mean, and the classic example of that, a game about one person who you don't get to play is Pendragon. Right. Where it's a game about King Arthur, and you don't get to play King Arthur. You are playing people responding to King Arthur. And that works because 
if someone says you are playing King Arthur, people might. You, if someone says you're playing Kirk, they say, "All right." You say you're playing King Arthur, like that's a that's a heavy crown. I don't know if I want to wear that one. Um, so some characters you can get away with that. Some characters it's harder to get away with that. I know that if you tried to sell a Star Trek game where you couldn't play Kirk, there would be riots in the streets. And I know because I've written two Star Trek games. And I have not written the new Modifius game, but I will bet you money you can play Kirk in it. We uh, have any more questions? Otherwise, Bill will ask me another question. You've seen how that goes. <laughs> Let me see what other questions do I have. Yeah, so um, um, world right when I. When I um, when I think of world building, like world building, uh, people hear, I mean, I hear the, the details that make this place different from anything else that I know about, right? And so, so I guess I'm still stuck on the start with Earth, right? That thing about ways of, uh, I, I guess I'm trying, to, I'm trying to wriggle out from under that as a, as a, as a thing, right? The, the notion of how do you get it. And, and it looks like everyone else is like completely content and, and isn't worried about they that. They've, they've, they've heard me do this at panel after panel, and I would beat them if they contradict me. Okay, Clark. Clark? Uh, do you want to talk about collaborative world building? Uh, yeah. And techniques or pitfalls or uh, uh, examples of it done well? Well, I mean, in a sense, you know, any, uh, any, any I mean, L5R is a collaboratively built world now because John Wick didn't write all of it. He's right now collaboratively building the uh, world of Thea out because he's not writing all of it. So a collaborative world, as those examples might indicate, does require one singular vision at the beginning to set down limits and boundaries and types that other people can play toward. So in a way, collaborative building, world building is what happens after this panel uh, suggestions have been taken on board. Uh, the Ability to collaborate with someone, whether on any creative project, you know, song, novel, dance routine, stand-up comedy bit, whatever, those are all the same pieces of advice, um, uh, and which boil down to mutual respect and have a veto system. <laughs> no, that's fair, and, and that does. And I heard your questions being up to what do you want to collaboratively build your setting at the table, kind of. Would John Wilkinson better have said Earth a little more contested? Well, I think so. I absolutely think so. And I said as much. Um, and I said as much to John, frankly. Um, John disagrees. John wants the freedom to be wrong a lot, which if I was wrong as often as John is, I would probably want to. <laughs> um, you know, again, you know, this is a, a long-standing difference of opinion between John and I. Um, uh, you can, I guess, judge us by our fruits. Uh, people just gave John a million dollars to fuck up Europe again, so <laughs> obviously I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> the, the, the larger, no, but the larger question about you know, at the table, right? Because that's a different game, right? Than, like, yeah, so a designer, a designer creating a setting, or a marketer designer creating a setting, uh, singular vision. Um, uh, and then a team of uh, mutual respect and veto power uh, producing producing some product that then is is distributed to uh, players who, who then use that setting is does seem that uh, uh, different 
regardless of how you do it, that seems different from I give you, as a designer, I give you something relatively blank and the power to fill in those blanks yourself. I right? think people talk about, um, uh, I, I, I remember a story about um, Over the Edge, right, where, um, you know, the, the final product for Over the Edge is um, this you know, thick book with all the factions detailed and, and different, different um, you know, crazy Dadaist kind of um, groups uh, on the margins and all these weird conspiracies. But um, the playtest of the game, the, 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 the thing that produced all of those wild and very sort of satisfying um, different groups, uh, correction, different groups, was an, an open-ended process where the players at the table were sort of adding stuff to it, right? And then that became codified, and that's the, game, the setting that get, get produced. The, uh, that gets published and gets shared to other people, but, the, but that's a different experience than the experience at the table of me offering, you know, it's a bunch of folks around the table and I'm offering something that wasn't there before, but now I've created the setting I've helped contribute something to it, right? And that's the sort of thing you're talking about, right? Is that, that that's, process of, that's one, one way that could go, yes. And, and, and again, if people have not played Microscope or have not bought or read Microscope, it is an excellent tool for exactly that kind of at-the-table setting design. And it feeds, it, it, you know, I like it, first of all, because it works. It empirically works. And second of all, because it agrees with me. It, you know, sets up, here's a, a conflict. And its conflict includes a temporal dimension, which I think is something maybe we haven't talked about. Because the microscope requires there to be a up and then a downbeat, and then an upbeat and then a downbeat in your um, uh, timeline as you build it. And if you want to build things in between two events, you have to build, you know, that was an upbeat, so now we have to have a downbeat. Well, now we have two downbeats next together. Let's put an upbeat in. And it creates this sort of cyclical rise and fall feel of history. And again, if you, can, if you look at history, you know that there are more falls than there are rises. And uh, there is not almost ever a rise again, um, uh, China being, I think, the only real exception. Uh, and so you have an awful lot of... Uh, of uh, how uh, you know unrealistic as it may be, it feels real and it feels lived in and gives you that verisimilitude that I talked about. Because now your history has depth, your world has depth. Without, and I hasten to add, without a hundred-page backstory with a timeline, and here's when the high elves learned. Oh, I'm will to read, stopping, um, <laughs> and all of that. But it, it has a depth, and so if you can present in an economical way a sense perhaps of one event that happened and every one of your one paragraph write-ups, and I stress this, one paragraph write-ups of a setting has somewhere in it a line about, of course, during the great uh, Ad uh, uh, Adamantium War, this place was a smoldering ruin and only took out and took a hundred years to rebuild thanks to the fresh springs here. You know, and then the next one, this, this, this side fought bravely during the Adamantium War and built shields you're like, oh, that's nice. I, I know something about these guys. They're shieldy. They're Helm's Deepy kind of guys. And then, you know, everywhere in it, you've got this little stratum, right, like an archaeological dig, and they're digging through Troy, and they're like, wow, look, this stratum is all on fire. Um, this, this is when it burned down. And you even look at your setting, and you say, this is a thing that exists. And you don't necessarily have to call it out. And ideally, you do not call it out, and you do not write a, a, a history of your world in that sense. But you yeah. present a world that has lived history that 
in the past people were doing things that were also important that led to ideally the conflict that you the poor bastard characters are mired in right now yeah let me just interject right so when i was a kid and star wars first came out and there was a mention of the clone wars right the clone wars and how awesome was that clone wars what could that possibly be that's awesome that's amazing that's 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 a proof for imagination speculation um 20 years or however many years later, and there's now a Clone Wars movie, and, and fuck that much, right? I, I hate that because Because the thing in my head was way better than uh, the thing on the screen. That's just me, though. Yeah, so is a big part of it just knowing when to stop? That's a big part of everything in art, knowing when to stop. Um, and certainly in game design, I think, or in game writing, knowing when to stop is, is crucial. Uh, people, by and large, are better able to read less uh, text than more text. That just seems like a, a tautology almost. And so um, the knowing when to stop is a key element to knowing how to dense pack your paragraph. In Day After Ragnarok, my goal was that every sentence is a story hook. That goal is not met, I grant you. But every paragraph is a story hook or more. I promise you that. Um, and that includes the random tables. Are, are all story hooks. So the goal of concision and freight uh, may seem opposed, but if you can reconcile them, or if you simply err on the side of concision, you will wind up forcing yourself to produce a better setting because you only can write about the important shit. You had a yeah, question? I was uh, wondering, so you, one of the things that I was thinking about is that, so if you want to do like the prohibition game, you can just say, you know, 1920 Chicago, 1930s, you know, like that. Um, but what if, um, in order to kind of cut down your work, down, and you don't want to do Chicago, you just want to do like a space prohibition, um, how do you feel about uh, using your art elements to, to provide those hooks? So you don't ever say Chicago, you don't ever say 1920s, but your images are that. Well, I think that by and large, if you have the kind of control over your art that almost nobody in this business ever winds up having. Great. If you can use your art to feed actual gameable information into the setting, wonderful. Please do, because a picture is worth a thousand words and is much faster to read. Um, I think that if you're saying we have space prohibition and then you show all the aliens going around in their fedoras with their antennas sticking out, <laughs> you may be saying something about your world that you do not intend which is to say, you are silly. Um, but uh, the, uh, but uh, you know, again, it worked for Star Trek, so who am I to mark? Um, <laughs> maps, yeah, I think you, you yeah. said Sara Voce. Maps are, of course, the ultimate in information condensation. Um, if you can present a world map or a city map or a uh, area that your game takes place in map, that is a venison devoutly to be wished. And there was a whole panel on cartography and gaming that apparently will be repeating every Metatopia until I die. Um, so come back next year, um, or listen to, Jason will put it on his podcast eventually, you can listen to that. Or you can listen to the two from the two Metatopias ago and get ideas about maps. Map, uh, maps are, as you say, they're very, very, very valuable, very, very, uh, you almost might say having a map in the design process is one of those ax uh, axioms that you should do, is that you should draw from a map as well as to conflict, although uh, the process, the point of your story at which you add the map is really going to be on you. Uh, some people can only design once they've got the map. Right. Uh, I, for example, can only design a setting once I've gone to a historical atlas and said, 
who's here, who's there, where's that street, what's, what's pointing where, why don't I have anything that takes place in this quadrant, in this part of the map? I need to find out what's awesome in Peru in 1948 and, and make that part of my game. Um, and then that drives me forward. Other people can't do the map until they know enough about the setting that they say, oh, here's where the wild fell is or whatever. So, All right. So we are about out of time. I think we may have time for one last question, comment, or anything. Yes. Um, so I'm still really struggling sort of your how, okay, so one of the best city setting creation systems, in my opinion, was uh, Dresden Files, which does a similar thing to Microscope, where you mm -hmm. build it collaboratively and stuff. Right. That pretty much completely ignores the use a real place, and I think it's... Yeah, well, so does Jim Butcher. Hello! Well, I mean, <laughs> but I, I think that really, that, that works, because it doesn't assume familiarity with a city from either the designer or the GM, or the gaming group in general, by saying, it's whatever you want. It's wherever and whatever you feel like is interesting to put into the story. Yeah, but again, that's 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 a technique to be used at the table by a play group, not by a game designer. But he specifically, I mean, the book doesn't say to set it in a specific city. It says, yeah, the book has a long chapter about a cult Chicago, and I know because I read it. <laughs> but, I mean, it doesn't use Chicago's, like, things. But, I mean... The, yeah, the yeah. chapter, the Chicago chapter, does okay. the setting creation chapter, which yeah. is its own magical animal, sure, sure. says, "Let us pretend you do not want to set it in Chicago right. because you are a fallen human." Um, <laughs> but it's giving you at the table advice, not as a designer advice. Right. So, as a designer, okay. you don't, you you can't pull everyone who's going to play your game and say, "What do you want to do? Do you want there to be witches? We can have witches. That's great." So it's good to have both. No, you the you the designer yeah. have to answer all of those questions. Okay. And once you're answering the question, yes, I want witches. Yes, I want a river. Yes, I want my city to be colonial. Uh -huh. You have talked yourself into Salem or Providence or Boston or something uh -huh. that is a real place. Okay. And then you can go to Salem, Providence, or Boston, and you can look at its history and say, wow, there is so much going on here that will feed my occult narrative of white courts and unseelies and vampires and magic and booyah and the whole nine yards. I mean, if you, um, the Paranet Papers, when it comes out, it isn't set in a bunch of nonsense pretend cities, it's set in a bunch of real places because real places drive story. And, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the setting creation chapter in uh, Dresden Files, just like the setting creation advice in Damnation City uh, for vampire, um, does not dictate the city because it's about how to use a city as a place to tell stories. But the fact that it does not say you must start with Chicago or you must start with Lima, Peru, doesn't mean you shouldn't wind up in Chicago or Lima, Peru. It just means you're defining the parts of the story that you want to tell at the table, which as a, G as a GM you can do by asking people. As a designer, you have to think, what parts of the story are my game about? And what parts of the story are interesting? and contain conflict and theme and all the other things we've been talking about. That's all the time we have. It's actually 11.01, so the nice people from the next panel are uh, urging us to... Uh, Thanks a lot.